Uh, hi guys, Russell here. Uh, slightly different uh, type of post today. Um, it's related to a lot of the themes I've been talking about for the last couple of years. But it, it's trying to explain why uh, when I look at markets, especially when I look at what's happened in 2023, I feel a sense of, of existential dread, uh, which sounds a little bit over the top. But I think once I explain what I'm seeing and thinking it, 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 it hopefully makes sense. So, you know, if you've been following me, you know, one of the things I've been talking about is how I think the world's moving pro-labor uh, and almost sort of anti-capital. And I think this was actually a good thing. Uh, I also sort of meant to me that asset markets and asset prices would go sideways. Um, you know, and the, the whole idea is that we have a huge uh, income inequality uh, gap uh, which is creating loads of political problems. And so the easiest way to get out of that was to create an environment where wages went up and asset prices stayed stagnant and fell in real terms until we got back to a sort of more stable political equilibrium. And we were seeing that in 2022. We saw a bit of it in 23. But when we look at, when I look at the data as it's coming through now, you know, what I'm starting to see is the sort of pro-capital themes look to be coming through again. Uh, and this is really filling me with existential dread because it does imply that the the political system as it is now uh, can't allow pro labor policies to be implemented. And if it in, if the system can't allow that, uh, the outcomes that might happen start to become more and more extreme. Anyway, uh, let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, so, you know, first of all. Capitalism is great. It is by far the best system out there. It's the efficient use of assets. Uh, it allows decentralized planning and decision-making. It frees the entrepreneurial spirit and is largely very meritocratic, largely. Not always. Not always. And certainly at some points at the moment, it doesn't seem that way. But it's, it's, it's got huge benefits over any other type of system out there. The negative side of capitalism uh, which I think most people understand, is it naturally leads to concentration of power. So, you know, bigger and bigger pools of capital tend to attract even more and more power and political power, and they seek to grow that capital even further. Uh, and so it, it naturally has a large income inequality aspect to it. Uh, now, some people may argue income inequality doesn't really matter as long as everyone's getting rich. Uh, and that is there's certainly some valid arguments to that. But it's also very true that whenever income inequality gets very large in history, you've tended to have political revolutions. Um, and, you know, what I think we're seeing and have seen for the last few years is that there's a large pool of sort of disenfranchised voters out there who feel like the system doesn't work for them and they are being wooed aggressively by populist politicians and unless we do something about that, very negative outcomes are already happening and are likely to keep happening. So let's just start look, looking at the UK because we can get very long data done on that. So what we see is, you know, unemployment in the UK has they've been looking to keep that low in the last sort of five, six years. So if you look at like the long history of it, it always tended to be low when we had the Great Depression uh, when capitalism failed. And then we had a long period where we tried to keep uh, unemployment as low as possible into the 70s. And then we went back to pro-capital. And now I think we're moving back to a very low unemployment era. Uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, focusing 
on getting unemployment down makes sense because high levels of unemployment in the 20s and 30s were definitely uh, the cause of the big drift towards both fascism and socialism in Europe. So I get that, you know, absolutely. The problem is that what also can disenfranchise people is income inequality and the, and the inability to purchase uh, property, for example. And what we can see in the UK, especially for over the last 20, 25 years, is that house prices have risen much faster than earnings, and much higher than earnings. And so now it's very common for particularly younger people to be unable to afford to buy property and being renters for their lives. Uh, and as house prices keep going up, it just creates a bigger and bigger income inequality naturally. Now, it favours people who own their, own their property and older voters, but it does create, as I say, a very big pool of people who feel disenfranchised from the system. Um, and, you know, this is a direct relationship to, you know, having lower interest rates. Okay. Um, so, you know, my idea, the model was that what we would get is we get rising wages, uh, which would be very good for growth. Those wages would be rising in real terms and we'd need to have higher interest rates to keep, uh, to keep inflation down. And so what I saw was food inflation would be a catalyst for uh, more uh, higher wages and it'd be a catalyst for policies to try and keep real wages high. And we still started to see that in 21, 22. But when we look at what food inflation has done and then we look at wages, I'm using UK nominal wages here, we can see that food inflation has eaten up a a huge amount of the gains in incomes that we saw through 2020 and 2021. Right, um, and I find that very disturbing because if if real wages are falling, we're really more in the pro capital environment, and we're starting to see that with lower interest rates. Well, the bond market is anticipating lower interest rates, so we're going back to a credit driven uh, GDP growth rather than wage driven GDP growth. Look at US in similar terms. You know, we had tremendous income growth uh, in food terms. So I use food CPI to deflate this, and then over the last couple of years. We've seen a lot of those gains being wiped out via food inflation, food CPI. Uh, so if you look at like price of chicken in the States, it's gone up rapidly and has not fallen in line with corn, which is unusual. So you basically, what you've seen is wages went up and now corporates have recaptured uh, what was going to labor through higher prices. Um, if we do an analysis in Japan, it, Japan's even worse. Japan, uh, food inflation has really took an, taken off in the last five, six years, wages have been pretty stagnant. So when we look at Japanese wages in terms of food inflation, they're at new lows. Uh, and so these are all more, much more pro-capital policies, um, uh, which really even drive even greater income inequality. And it makes me really worry about this. Um, when we look at asset markets, MSCI World has recaptured most of the, the losses that we saw in 2022. Um, so, you know, asset prices are doing well. So the one market which is definitely pro-labor for me still remains China. China's almost gone sort of anti-capital, so you're seeing real weakness. If you look at Chinese stock market, uh, back to levels first seen in 2007, and very, very weak over the last few years. Um, and, and you know a lot of people got caught out of that by, and when COVID policies end. But what we've also seen is very low CPI uh, numbers in China, which is why I would expect if you went out and actually implemented anti-capital policies. So property developers have been destroyed, credit has been tightened, the currency has been kept strong, uh, and these would be creating sort of dif- disinflationary uh, weak asset markets. So China has run sort of very, for me, 
very pro-labor policies. I don't think uh, Chinese real wages are falling. I think Chinese demand is very strong. If you look at what luxury is doing, you look at you know a lot of these sort of things that are related to Chinese consumer, they're not showing the same sort of weakness. If you look at sort of things like property development, yes, yeah, very weak. But the consumer side of it does not look that bad, uh, which is in line with sort of my pro-labor view. Uh, and the Chinese market is much closer to you know what I would expect for the rest of the world going forward. But what I'm saying is real wages are falling and that is a real problem for me. Um, and like I just showed that Chinese wages have risen far more than, than the rest of Asia. They've done a much better job in promoting uh, wage growth. So this leads me to a very you know, awkward position is that if China is the only pro-labor market in the world, it is possible for them to affect the sort of GLD, TLT ratio by themselves. They, are the, they, they were the biggest holder of treasuries, second biggest economy in the world, biggest holder of foreign reserves, uh, and you know, the Chinese uh, famously the biggest buyers of gold. So you do have this sort of potential that the GLD, TLT trade that I like has been purely driven by China uh, and the rest of the world stays in the pro-capital pro type system. Even though a lot of the language and policies seem pro-labor, uh, you, you, it's almost implying that governments would need to become anti-capital uh, much more than they have been. So in the States, antitrust would need to be enforced much more uh, rigorously. rigorously. Uh, interest rates would be need to be raised more and you would need to see some defaults like we've seen in China, which we haven't seen, um, would imply, you know, because what I'm seeing at the moment is wages going up and then uh, companies are raising prices more than wages are increasing. And so you're not getting any real transfer to workers, not, not yet. And you're certainly not seeing it in lower property prices either. In the UK and the US, property prices have stayed very robust. So why does this fill, fill me with dread? Um, when the political system is captured by one group, particularly a group that uh, has an excessive amount of power to begin with, you know the, the options for the vast majority of people is to go outside of the system, i.e. revolutions. Um, and if you look at the world today, I don't know what I see, you know, Trump has a good chance of being re-elected despite leading the capital invasion uh, at the end of his last term. Um, you know, who's going to be there to stop him next time? Honestly, who is? Uh, I look at large, large cap US corporates, the most wealthy, powerful companies in the world, who basically evade tax in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, and essentially, you know, having had a look at it, it's almost impossible for anyone in Europe to do anything about it. US do not feel any sort of need to try and crack down on this. Uh, they, they talk about it, but you know, they, they haven't really done anything. But at the same time that they're stealing uh, tax revenues from Europe, the US is also thinking about cutting military aid to, to Ukraine uh, in its fight against Russia. And so you're sort of left with this sort of, you, you've got this policy making is done for the very narrow needs uh, of US corporates at the exclusion of almost everyone else. And that for me is problematic. Uh, and as I said, mentioned at the beginning, one of my favorite uh, historian economists is Eric Hobsbawm. And in his, his masterpiece, The Age of Extremes, he argues that the threat of the Soviet Union, the threat of socialism, really made American capitalism better. You know, the elite, the people who ran it, made sure it worked for everyone, uh, made sure the system was fair, made sure that, you know, it was a fair and equitable system. 
because they wanted to make sure to show capitalism in the best possible light. And his fear was that when the Soviet Union collapsed, that greed and the power of corporates would take over and this sort of altruistic side of US policy making would disappear. And I fear he has been proven correct there. Um, and the ultimate outcome from that is that it's going to offer, usher in an age of conflict and revolution. And we already are probably seeing that. Uh, we've definitely seen the biggest land conflict in, in Europe since the end of World War II. You know, we're going to see China trying to expand its influence in Asia. Uh, and, you know, the problem is that if the U.S. can't self-correct, you know, we're heading for something far, far worse. Uh, and this, to be honest with you, fills me with existential dread. I really am praying and hoping that what we're seeing in the, in the economic diet reverses soon, that the talk of what the talk seems of pro-labor policy is followed through and is not thwarted by, by U.S. corporates. But I am, I am starting to be afraid that that's, that's just a pipe dream. And that, as I said, fills me with existential dread. Uh, so on that depressing note, stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.